0: Welcome, everybody, to Theology on Tap. My name is Justin. I'm so glad that you're here. This is Brian McGreevy, my best friend. And we are excited to have you with us tonight. We are, uh, if you're new, the way this works is you'll see these little sheets kind of around the room. And we're going to be talking about something that's really exciting for us tonight. We hope you share in our joy. But throughout it, you can scan this top QR code, and you can ask any question Related to what we're talking about or not or not. Yeah, and so we are totally not or totally not and I believe Lizzie Are you moderating tonight? fantastic, thank you so uh, Those questions will come in and then the second half of our time you can look over the questions that have been asked You can like the ones that you would like asked and those will kind of come to the top and then Lizzie will pose them to us but um, Just one, you'll see if you want to stay in touch with all that we do here. We do this every other Tuesday We're grateful for the folks at Henry's who always uh, provide us some space and we always have a great... Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, Kelly is filling in for Clark tonight and we're so glad that she's been a rock star and helping us out. Um, But you can join our email list. You can see that there. As well as one of the things that is coming up is Ash Wednesday in a a couple weeks, two weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, if that is new to you, you should come check it out. That's one of the cool things about... Our tradition is that it has uh, this service of preparing for the season of Lent leading up to Easter, and if you've never been to one, it's come—it's cool just to come and check it out. So I would invite you. On and
1: one of the great things about Ash Wednesday is it is preceded by Shrove Tuesday. Oh, that's right. Known in other places as Mardi Gras, and celebrated in the English and Anglican world since the Middle Ages with bounteous pancake suppers. So before Theology on Tap, next time, at Saint Philip's there will be an all you can eat pancake supper, uh, with bacon and blueberry pancakes and all sorts of stuff that, that will amazing. start I think at five thirty. So if you like pancakes, you don't want to miss that. And uh, you can come eat there and then just waddle on over here afterwards. That's right. Oh,
0: that's, That sounds amazing. We should bring some. I don't know how many we'll Fair have, enough. but that sounds great. <laughs> I like <laughs> Shrove Tuesday. That's awesome. Well, tonight we are going to be talking about... Here, uh, Anybody go to either one of the services of Mirror Anglicanism, the conference, or happen to go to the conference? Just curious. Hey, that's a good number of folks. Fantastic. Yeah, so we're going to talk about what that conference was like to go to. It's been several years since I've gone to a conference, uh, but it was kind of amazing because I felt like they were, all the speakers were reading stuff that or speaking on stuff that we've talked about. Yes. As, or maybe we were talking about stuff that they wrote. I don't know. But um, <laughs> there was a lot of overlap, so we're going to talk about that tonight. Mm-hmm. But first I wanted to ask you, because I'm curious, Like, are conferences just like a thing of the past now? Because you can pretty much get any kind of content online today you can listen to like any kind of teaching like is it really worth it to pay what was it like 250 dollars yeah there was no student fee this year so it was actually there was you had to inquire though oh there's an inquired student fee Mm -hmm. that you could look Mm -hmm. into but that's good to know but
1: that seems like a lot of money is it even worth it going to that these days uh i think that's a great question i think The whole idea of conferences and people coming together in person is kind of up in the air right now, especially after the pandemic. And you see the same thing uh, in this uh, weird debate that's going on in our culture about whether actually having workplaces where people work together is worth anything or whether it's just better to have everybody in their own little space at home communicating over the computer. But I would say resoundingly for a conference like mere Anglicanism, maybe not so much if you were talking about IRS regulations, (laughs) uh, but for something like mere Anglicanism, being together I think was really important. And I think that there was a dimension to being in a space where there are all people that have been drawn there because they love and or are curious about the same things. And one of the things that you might know if you are maybe a little bit of a C.S. Lewis nerd or a lot of one like I am, um, that Lewis talks about friendship and he says where friendship is birthed is when two people who don't really know each other are talking and one of them talks about something and the other one says, what? You too, you love that too. So two people that are standing by side by side looking at the same thing that they love, and that automatically builds some relationship and intimacy there. And if you take 900 people who are all interested either in the theme, which was uh, longing for a more beautiful story, lessons from C.S. Lewis on reaching a fractured world, or people just interested in C.S. Lewis, or people deep in their, Faith in Christ, and you put all those people in a room, there's an energy that comes from that that you just can't duplicate when you are uh, alone in a carol with headphones, you know, on. And then, of course, the worship services um, the worship services were amazing, not just because we had incredible music, thank you, Chris, uh, but also. Because of everyone participating together in worshiping, yeah,
0: yeah, that's. I I felt like it was. I was surprised how much I really enjoyed it. Even kind of helping to put it on, I I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And I knew, especially the part of being together post COVID. It had been a long time. What was it? Two thousand sixteen was the last time they had Mere Anglicanism, and a lot of people hadn't been to any conference in person before COVID, uh, since before COVID. Right. So um, that was kind of to be expected that people just enjoyed being together. It was kind of like a homecoming. But at the same time, what I was not, what I was surprised by was the worship. I think that was the highlight for me, what, which is not normally the case. I've been to conferences where there's like thousands of people and like before the speakers start, there'll be like a couple songs before, maybe a couple songs after. But the worship was different here. You actually had to leave the space where the talks were and go into a church building—a sacred, a beautiful, sacred, space beautiful like space. What we yeah. about here. Yeah. and that was just—I I couldn't, I can't even really put my finger on it—but just the leaving and going to another place to actually uh, that's intentionally set apart for worship impacted me in a way that I, I don't know if I can even explain. But that was, and certainly Friday nights communion service, it was just, whenever you get this many people who, you know, on a given Sunday, like, everybody's in a different emotional state, not everybody wants to sing, you know, this is something like, everybody who's there, 900 people, like, wanting to sing, wanting to be a part of it, and it sounds so different Mm -hmm. when you have that, that was the highlight for me of the whole conference, was actually not what the people had to say, though what they had to say was great, um, but it was actually worshiping together with other folks. And I do think, you know, there's a, the, the talks themselves, it's kind of like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said when, when he talked about preaching. Preaching is not something, he, he was always, this is a guy in the you know, early 20th, 20th century who uh, you know, was really resonant with his sermons being recorded via like a tape recorder, basically, before there was any of this stuff. And he said what was happening in worship, and this specifically in preaching, was an event where you could expect to encounter God. And that was something, I think, that's that's true for worship that doesn't carry through the medium necessarily of, of, of a TV or audio mm-hmm. or anything like that. And, and it was true for the, the conference itself, both the worship and then the, the lectures as yep. well. Well, what in the actual lectures... What was, like, your favorite part of that? Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, I know, all seven of the speakers. I've been shows. asked
1: this question before, and it's like most of y'all are not parents, some of you are, but it's like being asked which one of your children is your favorite. Which um, one is your favorite? I'm not sorry. answering that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's Mary <laughs> So I think one of the things that was really glorious about the speakers and the talks was that all of them were right on target with the theme of the conference, longing for a more beautiful story. But they were all filtering it through their expertise and their background and their experience of the gospel um, and their context of ministry. And so it was fascinating because there was like this thread that ran through all of it that was the same, but it was expressed in all of these different ways. So I think there, there were, all of them were amazing talks. I think, um, for me, I had heard all of the speakers before, so that colored my impressions a little bit. But the, the two talks that were the most impactful for me, I think, were um, Dr. Amy Orr Ewing, uh, who is uh, a brilliant woman from England. Uh, she took a first at Christchurch College, Oxford, That's like graduating summa cum laude um, from a school uh, and then did other graduate work and has written a lot of books and has done a lot of work on the theology of suffering. And part of what she was talking about is how, how many people in our culture have really experienced deep pain and even anguish in their lives and sometimes at the hands of the church or at the hands of Christians, And that that, for a lot of people, puts such a barrier to being able to hear the good news of the gospel. And then she also talked about all of just the pain and outrage about injustice and other things that exist in our culture right now. And she said, one of the things that we need to do, if you're a person who believes in Jesus, uh, one of the things that you need to do is to not let all of that discourage you but that to remember that christianity is really the only faith where god enters in to the pain and suffering of the world and experiences that and literally takes it into his person by being wounded and that that is a point of connection with people that it should be For us who know Jesus and love him and want to follow him and believe that he is the truth, that that should be a motivation for us to want to, with empathy and deep care and understanding and respect, to lean into other people's stories and to share with them. So I thought that was just really profound. A lot of folks said that she was like their favorite of all the speakers. I mean,
0: she was amazing and... I I took away from what she said the most, uh, you know, a lot of people think, oh, the problem of, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote The Problem of Pain. I think most of her talk was going through a chapter Mm -hmm. or several Mm -hmm. chapters of that book. And she said, you know, a lot of folks see this, you know, suffering. Why is there evil as a obstacle, as an obstacle to the Christian faith? She's saying, no, no, don't be scared of that. Because the the very fact that it outrages you, the very fact that you're in um, in." pain from it is
1: inexplicable otherwise yeah i mean
0: if it's just all random meaninglessness you shouldn't feel pain at all you shouldn't feel upset by your pain but she said no every one of us feels that way and that's what we should lean into both as you said with empathy but also making you know folks wonder why is it that i know that this is wrong you know and and lean into that as a way to point people to the who god is as you said on the Mm -hmm. cross so Mm -hmm.
1: And my other favorite, who was very, very different, uh, was Simon Harabin, who has uh, C.S. Lewis's old job at Oxford. Simon is a genius. Uh, He's in his 40s, and he is a philologist. I want you to all say that with me. Philologist. That wasn't very good. Do it again. (laughs) Philologist. It's such a fun word to say. Um, Most of us don't know what a philologist is. I didn't know what a philologist was until I started nerding out on Tolkien some decades ago. But a philologist is somebody that studies the origins of words and language and how they came to mean what they mean. And Simon is a philologist by training And he, I think, is the only person in history that has ever written a book on philology that became a bestseller. That is not something that is evident. Uh, But he is an expert on stories and medieval literature, Beowulf, Piers Plowman, all of that kind of stuff. But he gave this talk about, um, uh, the watchful dragons and uh, the whole idea of dragons and medieval literature and what dragons stand for kind of, and the idea that story, for those of us who think that we know everything, which is the disease of our age that I'm afflicted with and I imagine all of us are, um, that we think we've heard it all, we know it all, there's not really anything new, um, that story is often the way to get around that. Mm -hmm. And then he shared, this beautiful part of the Chronicles of Narnia out of the book that's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader um, about Eustace. Um, Eustace is one of the great characters of fiction. Um, He's described in the first sentence of Lewis's book The Silver Chair. It says there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And uh, he's just totally obnoxious and In the story, he literally turns into a dragon. And over time, he realizes through being a dragon, through getting kind of what he wanted, uh, the impact that that has on his life in such a negative way. And then there's this beautiful story of how Aslan, the great lion, um, comes to Eustace and through some very painful things, sets Eustace free to be um, a different kind of boy. Mm. And one of the things that Simon pointed out that's so brilliant about Lewis is that it would be really easy to say that Aslan transformed him and then suddenly Eustace was perfect. But he said, Lewis doesn't do that. Lewis is such a realist. And he says um, in the story, it would be nice to say from that moment on that Eustace was a very good boy all the time. But the fact of the matter is he began to be a better boy. There were still some days when he was exceedingly tiresome, but little by little, he began to change. And so he was just talking about how truth with a capital T can come through the medium of story in a way that touches our heart in a way that reading just a factual account wouldn't. Yeah, he, I mean, a lot of our speakers
0: were from England, and their I mean, his voice especially, as he read this, I mean, Jeff was perfect, the director of the conference, got up there and said, I don't know what kind of um, audible or somebody needs to hire him to read through the Chronicles of Narnia, because his impression was so spot on, the way he read it was just incredible. But what was amazing was that was the, I think, when we did a Theology on Tap about Lewis and Tolkien, Somebody asked a question: what "Was your favorite scene or something mm-hmm. like that?" That was the scene that, and it just sticks in your mind. Yeah. And that's what I yeah. love about you know that's what he was talking about that the story that capturing our imagination. It kind of he said it gets past the watchful dragon. Mm-hmm. So all the objections from our kind of our nature or from the world out there about is Jesus real? Is the the cross true? Like he's saying. The beauty of the story taps into something inside of us that's objective, yes. And it and it like bypasses all of that. Baggage. All the circuitry, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. just and it in the way he read it was exactly on point yeah. to to doing yeah. that too. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was surprised. I didn't know he was the one I was the most surprised with. I'd never heard of him before. I'm not a Lewis scholar like yourself, so he um, was new to me. But uh, it was amazing. I really enjoyed his talk.
1: Um, and the other fun fact about him is he was the person that the Oxford English Dictionary um, asked to write an article about why they had included in the new edition of the Oxford English Dictionary "Eeyore and Bear of Little Brain," <laughs> which was just great. So, what about you? What which which? That's not a I missed, that, a part. Sad I, way I missed that part.
0: <laughs> um, no, I think. No, for me, I really enjoyed. A couple of them. Um, unfortunately, so let's see. What was the? I mean, I got to hang out with Alistair McGrath the whole time, and he's one of the world's leading theologians. That was amazing. I felt like everybody said he did an amazing. He did an amazing job. But you're talking about somebody who just the tip of their knowledge. Like he was just trying to hit kind of
1: the surface to kick off the conference. For those of you that don't know, Alister McGrath is arguably one of the top two or three theologians of the world. Yes, not one, not two, but three doctorates summa cum laude from Oxford University, one in theology, one in biochemistry, and one in intellectual history. Yeah, and so you hear that, and I'm like, wow,
0: he's going to drop stuff that's earth-shattering on this, (laughs) and really what he talked about was He just explained the conference theme, which I don't know if we've said yet, but was longing for a more beautiful story. So we talked about three words, longing, beauty, Beauty. and story. And And it was gorgeous. It was amazing. It was the perfect way to kick it off, you know, that we all have these longings. That was one of the things that stood out to me from the conference was the book, The Weight of Glory. Has anybody heard of that, read it? Weight of Glory. See, I have not read this. I need to read this. Mm-hmm. But that came up, I felt like, more than any other of Lewis's writings. Yep. I was counting. Were you really? Yes. <laughs> um, I don't surprised. <laughs> right. So this was amazing. This this had to do with beauty and longing. This was a quote from The Weight of Glory, and I'm not sure if he said it. I'm pretty sure he did. But anyways. He the, did. Uh, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them it was not in them it only came through them and what came through them was longing and There was so much to be unpacked in there that i think several other speakers kind of talked about that mm-hmm. quote at different times but talking about beauty and longing that this there's something in all of us that that longs for joy and All this is is tapping on Aquinas and and St. Augustine, who said we were made for God, and our hearts are restless. They're longing until they find their joy, their their satisfaction Mm -hmm. in God. So that was one that I really was—I was surprised because I was expecting something so much deeper, but it was amazing. I talked to him afterwards. He said, I totally changed my talk mid-talk. I'm like, how did you do that? That's amazing. (laughs) He said, no, I just wanted to encourage people. They were really just— kind of your average per, average Christian out there I just want to encourage them in that um so I really liked what he had do you have anything you want to add
1: to McGrath well stuff? I think one of the things that is so beautiful about Alistair McGrath is that he is one of the most brilliant intellectuals at Oxford University and he has held an extremely high repute all across the ideological spectrum but he is the most humble, yeah. loving, kind, approachable person, yeah. not stuck on himself, not some kind of ivory tower, I deserve for everybody to like fall down and bow before me when I walk in the room. Just yeah. not like that at all. He was somebody you would wanna go have a beer with. And I just thought that was such a, at the risk of using an overused word, he was so winsome. Yeah, yeah. We got to talk about Kraft and we got to talk yes. about. I'll
0: say Riken because Riken is the president of Wheaton. He spoke, uh, Dr. Philip Riken. And Kate Panizza was his host. That's right, yeah. And <laughs> I was like, maybe a little more nerdy. He talked about the uh, uh, how Lewis understood scripture, which if you're a Lewis fan, some people out there think, well, maybe Lewis was a little weak in his doctrine of scripture. And what I appreciate about Riken was he did say some of the things maybe but then he explained gave some qualifications Mm -hmm. about why people think that he's pretty weak on it and then the the strengths yeah he's actually gave uh you know he wrote a whole book on miracles so he's staunchly defending the historicity of miracles but he was a literary critic and nowadays it's uh, in biblical studies it's all important about what is the genre of the part of the Mm -hmm. bible that we're reading that's really important lewis was doing that decades before people were doing that fashionably, but anything that stood out to you in that one?
1: Uh, Well, I think one of the things that Dr. Riken did so beautifully was to show that Lewis was someone who was a profoundly important scholar. You can leave aside completely his theology or his work as a Christian apologist, and he would still be one of the great scholars of the 20th century. But you take this man who was one of the great scholars of the 20th century, and then you look at his approach to the Christian faith, and he saw absolutely no um, intellectual issues with that. And I think particularly because in our culture, so often people who are Christians are thought to be somehow stupid or less than or maleducated or whatever it might be. Um, For him to give that robust defense of Lewis as the, you know, probably the greatest literary critic of the 20th century, but someone who would still claim that the Bible is authoritative for every aspect of life was really important. And um, the the other person that you mentioned, Peter Kraft, and how many of y'all have ever heard of Peter Kraft? So Peter Kraft is the longtime chair and professor of philosophy at Boston College. Um, He has Written over a hundred books. Think about that. A hundred books, yeah. And one of the remarkable things about him is that he is really old, but still really passionate. So I think, I could be wrong, but I think he's 86. And he got up there at the microphone and just. Bam, 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 bam. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like a fire hose pointed at you. And it was all just awesome. And all the people in the audience were like, oh. You know, it was was just remarkable. But he was talking about Lewis as a prophet. And he said he really believed, speaking as a philosopher and a professor of philosophy who, again, leaving aside his Christianity is hugely respected in the academic world, that he believed the two most important books of the past hundred years are Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, um, the fictional version of which is that hideous strength. And then he proceeded to talk about why. And then he, and he just unpacked these 12 points that are, in an hour, um, 12 points that are expressed in Lewis's writing that absolutely describe what is going on in our culture right this moment, even though Lewis wrote it in 1943. And it was fire. All I could think about was you had just taught
0: on abolition of man and that hideous strength within the last couple of years. And then to hear that talk had to just be, it was amazing. I couldn't type on my phone, taking notes fast enough on this thing. But it's funny, that's your ex- Experience of how he got up there because I think it was Alistair, and then it was um, then it was yeah Dr. Riken. yeah and second then Peter Kraith. and both of them are pretty engaging kind of speakers but 86 year old <laughs> Dr. Crayth kind of moseyed his way up to the speak uh, and the you're microphone. thinking oh this
1: is going to be so boring and, and
0: he just he never even looked up he just kind of looked down and was reading reading his manuscript and it was kind of in this way. But every, his first sentence, I can't... We, I, we oh, my gosh. We got yeah, to get a transcript of it. It was the longest sentence, but it was the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. Because it, it really did feel it just, like you were just, just getting just punched. nailed it. Oh, my yeah. gosh. It was yeah. amazing. But I had to... I, he was probably my favorite because he hit on a lot of the themes you've talked about in That Hideous Strength or Abolition of Man, which is C.S. Lewis was a prophet to our day and age because he's like, you know, this whole notion of, progress of humanity is a a complete lie. Like, are we really progressing? Yes, we've got technology. Are we better people? Do we have more leisure time? Or are we busier, unhappy, and by and large, worse people than we were before all this? So he just popped all these balloons about the the notions that we tend to think. But unlike Huxley, who wasn't a Christian, Mm -hmm. he said Lewis, as a Christian, has a lot more hope than Huxley. And so I wanted to share some of the, he gives four pieces of advice at the end. Number one, Christians are foreigners in in a strange land. We're pilgrims passing through this world, looking to our heavenly home. And when you approach this world that way, you can have some hope that it's not just, uh, this is all that there is. Right. Yeah. The second one was, um, oh, this was an amazing quote. There is one Uh, There's more power in one atom of Christ's body than an entire atom bomb. And so if you think about the resources at your disposal if you're a Christian, that you're belonging to the church, belonging to Jesus' body, there is more resources, more power in one atom of his body than an entire atom bomb. Um, He said, you know, as prophets in the Old Testament, they always were appealing to the free choice this, you can turn and change your ways because you have a mm-hmm. real choice mm-hmm. right now. And I thought that was a really good point. But the final one that was just kind of the mic drop was oh, he said, yeah. you know, Sodom and Gomorrah almost made it. You know, Abraham was interceding for these, these notoriously wicked cities. And if there, and God ultimately, if, if he found 10 righteous people, just 10, he would have spared all the wrath upon those places. And he said, you can be... What, what can we actually do in this world? So he ended on a very hopeful note. He's like, be a saint. Be somebody who actually lives out their faith and um, in an authentic way, and you can change the world. And I thought that was a really, after just kind of what felt like a lot of doomsday, he ended with this, you
1: know, just the simple uh, living like Jesus did yeah. can truly and he, change the world. And he concluded saying that you can be the straw that breaks the camel's back mm. Of all the bad things in this culture, if you will only do this thing, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he sat down, and it was just like... It was amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those that
0: everybody was like, we need a transcript of that, and so they're going to make one, and it's one I feel like, if I read that like every week, it would be really helpful. It was dense, but... Uh, any other concluding talks that you wanna, as we wrap up, I think we got a couple minutes before we get to questions. Well, I
1: just think that there were, there were so many just beautiful things. One of the things I loved, and I can't remember who said this, I think it might've been Jerry Root, who gave another just amazing mm. talk, um, With he was talking about teaching and how we have um, completely dumbed down the idea of teaching and that so much of the emphasis in our culture now is teaching to a test, or trying to teach to certain outcomes and that you don't wanna have intellectual engagement, you wanna have regurgitation. And he said, really what good teaching is, is loving something publicly. And I thought that was really profound. The other thing that I thought was really profound that um, I tried to I wanted really to talk about this in my sermon on Sunday, but there was no way to do it um, unless I went for an hour, and I'm not gonna go for an hour now, but Michael Ward in his last talk um, was talking about the power of the perspective of the narrator in a story and that, if you are the narrator of your own story, if you remember from like high school English, there are different voices that narrators have. You can have a narrator who's a character in the story, or you can have the omniscient narrator that knows everything that's going on. And what Michael Ward was saying, and he used this beautiful example from the end of The Horse and His Boy in The Chronicles of Narnia, um, where the boy Shasta is talking about how his life sucks, basically, and he's never been given a fair shake, and everything has gone wrong, And he's never been able to do any of the things that he really wanted to do. And um, that lions have been after him and all these other things. And then he's just the the character narrator. But then Aslan, the great lion, who's the omniscient narrator comes in and then tells Shasta all the pieces of his story that he didn't realize to show that actually he's lived a life of deep blessing. and. It was just unbelievably powerful the way that he expressed that. That's what I wanted to, that's what I was
0: going to end on, actually, was Ward and how he talked about, it was in the section, he said, there's three things that, what are some lessons that we can take away from C.S. Lewis and how we share our faith in the world? And he gave three things. We need to tell our stories, tell the gospel story with reverence, honesty, and joy, right? And so that was the part about reverence. And I think that was the of all of his talk, the part that stood out to me was the place of silence even in mm-hmm. that. And the power of silence today and how—we've ter- talked about this at Theology Time, how terrified we are of silence yes. and being quiet. And yet Lewis uses that so profoundly in his fiction. And those are the moments—and I didn't know this. Is this true? Where he talked about—it was, you know, Lewis, the most reluctant convert, right? Where it had this amazing kind of—he— was an a- a profound atheist. Yep. Then, when he became a theist, he didn't even become a Christian. He was just open to the idea that there is a God. He writes about that conversion uh, in the most powerful, kind of bombastic way. But it was when he became a Christian that he actually spoke with a lot more kind of reserve and silence. Is that
1: I don't know yeah, where so he speaks. basically, about when he becomes a theist, he writes about this, and he says, "You must." Picture me alone in my room at Maudlin, um, most earnestly trying to resist the approach of him who I so desperately longed not to meet. Finally, I gave in and admitted God was God and knelt and prayed the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So that was his conversion to theism. But then when he describes his conversion to Christianity, he talks about how he was going with his brother to the zoo and that when he started off on the journey he did not believe that Jesus was son of the Son of God but when he came back from the journey he did and he likens it to some chains falling off and that's all he says about it yeah it's, it's it doesn't get that much attention yeah but yeah I thought if we
0: can tell the story because reverence and silence that kind of you know you're standing on something significant and he talked as well about beauty. This was a question. I don't know if we ever answered it, but like, is there ever danger in beauty? And he really talked a lot about, mm-hmm. you know, Jadis and the right. you know, magician's nephew. Like the face of beauty can be can be evil deceiving. and wicked, yes. and deceiving. Yes. Um, and so I just thought, like in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Sometimes they were all deceived. So a response to true beauty can be a shutting of the mouth and just a silence mm-hmm. where you, there, where words are inadequate yep. for it. Uh, I thought that was really, it, it impacted me, so. Well, we should, that, yeah. was, that was good, okay. but how are we doing on questions?
2: Oh, the, oh, yeah, we're good. Um, we've got quite a few, so if everyone wants to go and scan your paper and go the ones that you all would like to hear. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and start with this one. Does the clergy prefer to be addressed as father, reverend, or just by first
1: names? Uh, That is such a kind and polite question, whoever was thinking about that. Speaking for me, I don't really care. Um, I probably, either Brian or Father Brian, either one of those is good for me yeah I, or hey you whatever I still think I'm like young
0: enough to be on a first name basis with a lot of people and I turned to the acolyte and introduced myself as I'm Justin and I was like that was probably inappropriate actually I should probably have said I'm like Pastor Justin or Pastor you know I would prefer that or just first name but y'all are all old enough to call me that but like a 10 year old that would that was just they just laughed at me they were like I'm not calling you that so <laughs> That's a great question. Nobody knows what to call us. And very thoughtful. Thank we'll you. We'll answer that. to anything. Really.
2: I have a feeling that y'all are going to like this one. Um, if each of y'all could write a book, what would you write about? Oh,
1: mercy. <laughs> that is not a good question to ask me. Um, I have all sorts of books that I want to write. Um, I actually am sort of in the midst of trying to I can get my act together, publish a book on the Screw Tape Letters. Um, so we'll see if that ever happens or not. If I take the time to actually do it, I have actually written some books, but most of them are not ones that you would want to read, uh, because they're mostly when I was a lawyer writing about um, insurance and risk management. Anyone? Um, <laughs> pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. Um, but I think anything sort of in the constellation of Lewis and Tolkien. Beauty, longing, truth—anything in that range would be something I would love to write on.
0: You'd be good at that. That'd be good. I honestly have no idea. Uh, I've struggled with that question. Yeah, I, I'm jealous of folks. We have a number of people who are creative writers and can write. I that is just terrible. Like I can't even color inside the lines, much less write captivating stories. But the way God has I don't know about that. I, I I can distill information pretty well. I, my mind works in that way. And so a, a lot of the books that I would write either have already been written or I would do some things that maybe distill older works that are really meaningful for today and try to bring them in a more accessible way. What I care about is about the people in the, the pews of the church, people on the street who, who would really benefit from some of the ancient wisdom that's gone before and God's blessed me with being able to understand some of that and translate it would be kind of fun for me.
2: How do I sort out voting when every politician supports things that are immoral slash anti-Christian? How do you sort out moral priorities?
1: Oh boy. That's a great question. That is Mm -hmm. such a great question and really a difficult one in our culture right now and I think that what, what our culture wants to tell us is that there, there's one group of virtue and one group that isn't. Mm-hmm. And you, depending on which side you're on, it can be either way. But the problem with that is exactly what the poser of that question said. Every politician is going to hold at least some views that are going to be objectionable to you. And I think there, there actually, believe it or not, is some great stuff from C.S. Lewis about this. Um, or maybe that's not so unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> but he writes about politics and what it would look like to have what he calls a Christian political program. And he said it would make everyone angry. Um, the people on the conservative side would be horrified that it was too liberal. And the people on the liberal side would be horrified that it was too conservative. But his basic point is that what you have to look at is what are the key principles in scripture and then try to figure out um, knowing that no candidate is going to align with all of those to try to sort through where they do align and where they don't align. And then sort of, sometimes it gets to picking the lesser of two evils, which is a very sad place to be in a culture, but I think it's where we are. And so you have to look at what are the the emphases of scripture and then figure out which candidate seems to line up best with those. What would you yeah. say to that?
0: Well, I thought it was, in, one of my seminary professors was from England and he said that this is um, a uniquely American problem. Like the, the the stigma of voting either for the other party Uh, in America is especially strong. It's not so much the case in the UK. I thought that was kind of interesting uh, because I would have thought he was like really Republican in his thing, but he was like, no, in, in fact, any person who's a candidate would be flawed, as you're saying. I think the best thing to do is try to get out of the... just the thinking of the world and just immerse yourself in the scriptures, right? And so read the scriptures, Remove as much of your own bias. And there's parts of the Bibles that, that, that you know upset me, that rub against you, and I think that's a good thing. It shows that you're having a relationship with somebody outside of yourself when God can actually contradict you. So immersing yourself in the Bible and having that kind of just flow out of you and then resting in the decision that nobody's going to be a perfect candidate for that. And there's different philosophies, as Lewis talks about, of... Um, You know, and politicians and voting for politics and that sort of
1: thing, but well, um, the other aspect of it is the scriptures are very clear that we are to pray for our leaders and we are to pray without ceasing for our leaders. And I I know, at least for me, I'm not very good about doing that. And I think the other thing that's important to realize, and I can't remember who said this, but the idea that salvation does not arrive on Air Force One, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, is really important and it goes to what we were quoting earlier from the conference from peter kraft that we are sojourners and pilgrims in a strange land and that um, things may not go the way that we would hope that they would in the political sphere but that doesn't mean um, that we lose hope as the people who believe that we are citizens of a different kingdom
0: you can also always abstain. I mean, there's plenty of Christians whose conscience they look at the, uh, the candidates and they just, I can't vote for either of these. It's a perfectly valid Christian way of, of answering that question, I think. so.
1: Great question. Yeah. Is it biblical to
2: pray to saints that are
0: dead? Are there any that are alive? Is That's a good question, too. Are there any
1: saints that are alive? Well, it all depends on how you define the word saint. So in the New Testament, saint actually means any person who is seeking to follow Jesus Christ. And so particularly when you look at the uh, epistles that Paul wrote, he calls all the Christian believers saints. But I think in the question, what we're talking about, what the questioner is asking, is about saints that have been canonized Um, in the Roman Catholic Church's process of canonization. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are um, obviously different viewpoints about this between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Um, I think one thing that we would agree on is that the saints who are not living in this world are not um, dead in the sense of no longer having life but that their life is in heaven rather than on earth. And one of the things that we do know is that the saints in heaven do pray for people who are still on earth. Now, that much we know from the scriptures. Um, Protestants would say it is a bridge too far to implore a particular saint Um, to pray on your behalf. Catholics would say that's not a bridge too far. Um, But I think the important thing is to understand that the saints are um, part of that what Hebrews calls the great cloud of witnesses who are living in heaven and worshiping at the throne of Christ and are interceding for us all the time. I think there's a Protestant reaction
0: that anytime they hear the word saint, it is to, it's almost like Mary. We just initially, we don't want to be Catholic. So we're just going to kind of buck against that. But the reality is, is that we, I mean, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And there is a sense that um, we are to look as exam, look to examples Mm -hmm. in the faith of those who are further along than we are. I think that's perfect. Yeah. To imitate them Uh, as a, Good Protestant, I would say that's great. Um, and but the question was, is it okay to pray to saints? Is that or no? Is it biblical? And I would, I think that's right, right? Um, I'd be curious if the Catholic Church would say it's biblical. Maybe they could make some kind of argument. I would say that it's not biblical. The scriptures teach that there's one mediator and advocate uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, again, I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, you know, demonize saints is not what we're supposed to do, but we're looking to uh, to Jesus, yes, but also those who are further along, who can help us along the way. Right,
1: and we say in the creed every week that we believe in the communion of saints, and that that's the whole idea that all of us, in what traditionally is called the the church militant, which are those of us who are alive mm-hmm. on this earth who are following Jesus, and the church triumphant are all part of one body of believers. And the church triumphant being those who have died in the faith and are in heaven with Jesus. I would I would also want to just say,
0: I think a lot of people don't realize that the scriptures, as you already mentioned this, but like Paul calls the living people in Corinth saints. The, the to the saints in Ephesus, Ephesus, sorry, or Corinth or wherever he's addressing his letters to, Christians have the righteousness of Christ given to them by faith. And that is something that is puts them on the status of, of saints. Not in the sense that you're talking about in the Roman Catholic Church. But that's part of the essence of the gospel mm-hmm. is that we are holy, which is what saint really means. We're set apart, sanctified uh, because of what Jesus has done for us. Right.
2: Anglican Opinion, or Henry
0: VIII? Anglican Opinion.
1: Okay, I'm gonna take that to mean, is this a question about the origins of the Anglican Church? Uh, Was it Henry VIII that started the Anglican Church? Some people believe that there was no Anglican Church, and then Henry VIII, because he wanted to get divorced, started the Anglican Church. And actually, and I'm gonna try to do this really quickly, uh, Christianity came to England probably in the first century with Roman soldiers. Um, There was British Christianity thriving uh, by the third century and then there were bishops from England that were sent to councils of the church that were in um, France at that time. So the Christian faith grew up in England and spread to Ireland and uh, developed into what a lot of people today sort of lump into the term Celtic Christianity. And then when missionaries came from the Roman Catholic Church to Canterbury in the late 6th century, they were very surprised to find that Christianity already existed in England and that it had some things that were sort of different in the way that they approached things than the Roman way of doing things. So there was eventually a council at Whitby uh, where they talked about some of these differences, but there always had been a stream in the English church that was a little bit different from the Roman Catholic church. And so when the tide of the Reformation began sweeping through not only Germany, but England, there was this understanding that the English church could go back to some of the things in its roots and embrace some of the reformation that was seen uh, coming out of Germany, and that that happened to coincide with the same time that Henry VIII, for political reasons, wanted to be divorced not only from his wife, but from the Pope. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say the Anglican church's roots go way back um, before Henry VIII, and that that was just one aspect of what led to the Anglican Church. Do you yeah. want to add to that, really, really briefly? <laughs> that
0: it was the I think the the Henry VIII, like it's just a lot of people are like, well, he wanted a divorce, that's why the Church England started, as you that's just said. Just wrong. That's just wrong because his I mean, kings then could have done whatever they wanted. Like it's a historical fact that they didn't need the Pope's approval to do that uh, to get a divorce or whatever. <laughs> Um, And also, as you said, the rising tide, it was a matter of time before the Reformation hit England. And that was simply the occasion for it. It was already happening among, you have uh, what were called Lollards. This was Lollardy, that was the historical term of evangelicalism uh, in the 16th century sense of the term. The Reformation happening on the ground level, that was the occasion at the top was Henry VIII's. Divorced. And if that wasn't what the question really meant, please talk <laughs> Sorry, to us If that was not time for one more, we've got we've got five minutes. We got yep. all the time in the world.
1: Depends on how quick we are.
0: <clears throat> well, this this one might be a little controversial. Okay. So
2: I would hope you've spent your whole lives thinking about this answer. The people want to know if you were a dog what kind of
1: dog would you be? Wow. Not Um, a a cat. Definitely not a cat. Mm -hmm. There was actually one of the speakers at Mira Clunosum that said some sort of disturbing things (laughs) (laughs) about cats. Choose wisely. I would be a golden retriever. (laughs) No doubt.
0: No surprise here. That sounds good. Yeah, I don't know. Probably a retriever, I always had labs. They were really like boundless balls of energy though. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. (laughs) Just something, not a cat, that's all. Not a cat, me neither. That
2: was a lot faster than I thought this was gonna go. So, how do you bring people to church when they're content with watching online?
1: Oh, Oh, such a good question. Um, I think there are a lot of ways And I would say there's sort of two aspects to that. One is talking to them about why there's a difference between going online and going in person. And the other is incentivizing them to come. Um, I think there's a lot you can do with incentivizing people to come by saying you would love to have them come and sit with you in the service, and that you would love to go get brunch afterwards or something like that. I think that's a way to move people out of their comfort zone. But I also think you can, especially if it's somebody who is somewhat committed to the Christian faith, you can look at things like Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 that says, do not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but um, encourage each other daily and all the more as you see um, that great day approaching. And I think scripture is clear that the believers are to be together Um, Acts, when it's just talking about the church in chapter two, it says they were all together and they devoted themselves together to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that together part is really important. And I'll just use a little example. I don't want to embarrass you, but hopefully we'll both be embarrassed if we're embarrassed here. one of the things that was remarkable about that Friday night worship service is that Justin and I were standing together oh, yeah. and we were both deeply moved and crying at the same time and sort of having to lean on each other. And
0: We weren't the only ones. No, we were
1: not. There were a lot of people <laughs> like that. Um, and it was a beautiful thing. And much as I would encourage you to go watch the video of that service because it will bless you, yeah. you will not experience that sure. watching the video. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, the church is literally not the
0: place, but it's the people who are called together gathering in the assembly. That's what the, the, the word originally mm-hmm. means. So that's one thing. The best article I've ever read on this talked about the reason, you know, watching church, it splits your humanity in half. You, you, imagine your senses of sight and sound are in the congregation, so to speak. But if you're in your pajamas, your sense of touch, your sense of smell, of the pancakes, you know, it splits your humanity in half. And I think that's a perfect, you're not meant to be that way. So you're not way. present. No, you're not present. Your, your, whole, or your whole body, your whole senses are supposed to be engaged in worship. And so you simply can't do that in that way. Yep. We can end early. We've never ended early before. We had so much to say about the Mere Anglicanism Conference. It was great. We do um, hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. But thank you so much for coming out tonight in two weeks. Remember, Mardi Gras, Shrove Tuesday, pancakes over there. Should we just forego pizza? or just? I share? think we should probably have pizza. Time. I don't want to discourage people from the pancakes. No, that are going to be, but uh, there may
1: be people that can't get there in
0: time. Well, that's their, mitt- that's their loss. <laughs> no. All right. We'll bring pizza. But come for the pancakes, too. It's going to be awesome. Uh, two weeks, Mardi Gras. That'll be great. Thanks yep. for coming out. Thanks tonight. for coming, y'all. Yeah.